All right, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There it is. We're talking about the vapor of life. Ecclesiastes, the teacher, Koheleth is his Hebrew name. Ecclesiasticus is his Greek name. And thus the name of the book is Ecclesiastes. He's teaching us and walking through life and and purposely busting our bubble. All the things that we look to for pleasure and fulfillment, he's going one by one. Pleasure, work, family, all of these things will not ultimately fulfill you in the way you think that they will. And today, today he starts striking really close to home for good church people. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream that comes with much business, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying for it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and then not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Verse 7, for when dreams increase and the words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. So um, when I lived in Sarajevo, Bosnia, um, it was about 10 years after the breakup of for some of you, you've never even heard of this country, of what's called the former Yugoslavia. And there was a subsequent war, and there was a siege around the city of Sarajevo. And part of the remaining effects, I, in the 10 years I was there, that, that time I was there after the war, one of the remaining effects was there was believed to be in the country about a million um, unexploded landmines around the city of Sarajevo in the countryside of Bosnia. And so quite often, as you would be driving along or heading out to some, some place, uh, you would see in a field... It would have in front of it uh, some barbed wire, and it would come with a, a fence, and that f- and a fence, and it would also have a sign, and that sign would have one word on it, "Pazi," with an exclamation point. Sometimes it had three words on it, "Pazi, Pazi, Pazi." This was the Bosnian word for caution. And whenever you saw that sign, what it was communicating to you was in the area after that sign was, was a land area, was a field that had not been cleared of the land mines. What was most disconcerting for me was when I went up on the, the mountain called Bieloshnica and I went skiing for the first time in my life. So I don't have a whole lot of control over what's going on. And as you're skiing down the mountain, it was where the 1984 uh, Winter Olympics was held, the, the, the professional mountain that the Olympians went down, I was trying to learn on. I spent an entire day doing nothing but falling. And what was far more disconcerting was than the fact that I was falling was the, um, was the wonder is, uh, can I stop if I want to? Because at various times you'd come across on the mountain, you would see the sign that read, Pazi, and I have no control over where I'm going, and it made you greatly concerned. Well, what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us this about coming to church this morning is he's saying outside of the church building should be a big sign that says, Pazi, caution. Where you are going is dangerous. Be careful. Tread lightly. 
coming to church, gathering with God's people for worship. And that is what is going on here. Gathering, going up to the house of God, which would have been the temple in the Old Testament for us. It is coming into God's house. And this is God's house, not because there is something necessarily sacrosanct about this building, but when God's people gather in a place in order to worship him, that becomes the house of the Lord. And when we gather here, what he is saying is, we are endeavoring to take part in something that is actually quite dangerous. Be careful. Think about what you're doing. You're not just dropping in on a neighbor for a friendly chat. You're entering God's house. You're entering God's house. The picture we have in mind here, I think, the, the, the reverence and the honor that we're supposed to have is like that, that Moses was to display before God. When God in the burning bush calls Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and he says, Moses, and he speaks to him out of the burning bush, and he says to him, Moses comes near, and then God says, stop, take off your shoes, for you stand on holy ground. In other words, tread lightly, watch your steps. Andy Dillard says this, and a rather tongue-in-cheek comment about how people come to church. She said, why do people in church seem so cheerful, brain, like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute one? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are often children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' hats and straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. She's communicating in vivid prose, making fun of the kind of the silly way in which we come into church, the disrespect, the irreverence. The teacher is telling us that there is a kind of worship that takes God and his power and his holiness seriously, and there is a kind of worship that is vain, that is vanity, that is empty, and that is therefore dishonoring and irreverent to God. And, you know, God would look at us, and what the teacher looks at us, and he's saying, don't bring that here. Don't bring that weak worship here. It's March Madness. And so you've been maybe watching a lot of basketball like I have. And I, I remember there was times where if you were to drive really hard to the basket and a very large human would stand in your way and block your shot or strip the ball from you, he would look at you and, look and say, don't bring that weak sauce in here. And that's what the teacher of, of Ecclesiastes is telling us. Don't bring the weak sauce of your irreverent worship in here. The vanity, the flimsiness, the vapor, the vapidness of religiosity is what he's gonna show us, is the weak sauce. And the teacher is calling it for what it is, not good enough. Religiosity is not good enough. And so we will begin with looking at the weak sauce of religion under the sun this morning. And here's what I wanna talk about. What we're gonna, the words we're gonna to use to try to connect to it is what he goes after is a religion that is full of hot air. And so the first point is this, the windbag of religiosity. And this is where we're going to spend 70, 75% of our time this morning. You know that phrase? I love that phrase, windbag. You know, it's in two Disney movies. It's how I know it from my childhood. There's one particular part in Jungle Book where one elephant stomps on the, uh, the, the, the nostril or the, the trunk of another elephant and says, be quiet, you pompous windbag. And I was always tickled by this word. Well, that is what the teacher is saying. It is saying that, you, that us and our religiosity is nothing but a bunch of hot air. It all comes out of you like a garlicky stench of a belch, and it stinks before God. This is the teacher describing religion, man-made religion under the sun. 
It is full of hot air, just a windbag of religiosity. And he gives us three descriptions this morning in our text of windbag religiosity. The first is this, is the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools. This is referring to the formal sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament temple worship. Not that that was foolish, but what he is saying is that there are those who will bring their temple sacrifice and they'll come to worship and they think that those sacrifices have actually done the job of covering their sins. And that they think that that is all that God is asking. And what is specifically being spoken against here is moving through the rituals of sacrifice without actually a heart of repentance. Of looking at God and saying, this is what God really wants, is he wants a slaughtered animal. He doesn't really want my heartfelt confession and repentance. So offering the sacrifice for sins will actually, will actually if it's done right, come with confession and contrition. This is, but this is religious formalism is what he's talking about. This is coming to church and doing what, what we do just because this is what Christians do. This is my sacrifice of praise to you, God. Isn't this pleasing? Ironically, foolish churchgoers recognize, we recognize that we need a sacrifice, and we'll get to that at the end this morning, but they look to the sacrifice that they provide as being the means of gaining them access to God. But God is disinterested in their sacrifices, He wants our repentance and he wants our obedience more than he wants our sacrifices. This is said multiple times in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel says this to King Saul when King Saul has has disobeyed God, instead said, I'm going to offer a bunch of sacrifices that I stole from this other king. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Isaiah, or, um, David in Psalm 51 in his great confession brings the same aspect out as well. He says, God, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And that you will not despise. What God wants is a heart of contrition, of conviction, of confession and repentance more than our outward, formalized, ritualistic aspects of religion. And what seems to come with this mindset is that these sacrifices and these religious rituals that we give to God are somehow gaining us favor with him. What are your religious rituals? What are they that you look to that you think is actually gaining you favor with God? We can offer something to God like money or service or attendance at religious events because we think it will cause God to give us what we really want. God, give me really obedient children. I'll bring them to church if you'll make them obedient. You make them good, I'll bring them here. This is not repentance and this is not obedience. Instead, this is what's called what it is. It's an attempt to manipulate what we want out of God. I'll do this and you give me what I really want. Second example of windbag religiosity is wordy worship. We see this in verses two, three, and seven. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. He's big, we're small. Therefore, let your words be few. Verse three, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Verse seven, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. The descriptor he gives here of windbag worship is the use of many babbling words as we approach God. He says, don't be rash. Don't be hasty. Don't just start talking. Remember whose presence you're standing in. Don't just start flapping your lips. <laughs> we, you know, there's wisdom in some of the most foolish places. Lisa from The Simpsons said it this way. Better remain silent and be thought a fool 
than to open your mouth and remove all doubts. And perhaps this is how we might need to come into worship. Now, real quick, because I, don't want, I want to brush away a potential distraction from the verses I just read. Verse 3 and verse 7 connects dreams in many words. The teacher is making some sort of metaphorical connection between the increase of dreams and the increase of foolish top, talk. Now, there is no consensus amongst biblical scholars and commentators as to what this means, and so that is the end of how much time I'm going to spend on it. Because the rest, of anything else I would say on it would be mere speculation. But what is obvious is the larger point. Where there is much use of talking and many words, there is the presence of foolish and vain worship. Much words. Now, if that's not clear to you as to what that might look like, Jesus makes it even more clear in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. He says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Your Father is in heaven, and you are below. He already knows. He knows all things. You know hardly anything. He is great, and you are small. Their hope here in, in this, though, those who use their many words is to gain approval. It's the same thing as the sacrifice of fools. Oh, if I just, if I pray in a certain way, if I say it in this particular way, if I pray with these particular religious words and I say hope and grace in just the right way, with the right inflection, then God, and with the right fervor, then God will hear my prayers and he'll give me what I want. But in this we forget we are dealing with a God who is in heaven and we are on earth. He is unimpressed with your prayers. By all of our worshipful pomp and circumstance, he is unimpressed with our bowed knees and our raised hands. He is unimpressed with our carefully crafted liturgies. Sorry, Joel. He is unimpressed with our theologically robust songs and our overly wordy sermons. Sorry, myself. And the rising emotions with our repeated choruses. He is unimpressed. He's unimpressed. God looks at us and says, I'm not listening to you through your expensive sound equipment through which I can hear your many words. I'm instead listening to you through the spiritual stethoscope through which I can see the content of your heart and the smallness of your character. And that should give us pause. He knows what you've been thinking. Even if what comes out of your mouth is religious bombast. And buttering God up he knows what's going on in your hearts. And many words are not only unimpressive to God, but he is actually offended by them as if they're a cheap trick to garner his blessings. You begin to see a theme. Your religiosity, what are you after? Third, third windbag Windbag religiosity example, empty vows, verses four through six. When you vow a vow to God, do not be delayed paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Not paying what you vow is... When you say something you're going to use, give to God, you should pay it, right? You think the IRS is bad? Have you met the holy God? All right, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? In Bible times, people would often make vows to God as an aspect of, of in the context of public worship. They would stand before others as a, as a grand gesture of their commitment to the Lord and say, I'm going to vow. In my many words, I, I make promises to God. And the bi- problem is that it's much easier to make a vow than it is to keep it, isn't it? The Bible is very clear here that when we make a vow to God, we're required to keep that vow. It's much better to make a vow or not make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. 
it's better to simply remain quiet. And in verse 6, there is this reference to a messenger who may say, oh, well, where we say, that person might say, oh, I, I forgot. I, I, I made a mistake in that vow. What it's referring to as a messenger is apparently in, in, in the times there, if someone made a public vow, there would actually be some, someone who maybe worked for the temple or for the priest, and they would go and actually say, hey, you made a vow. You need to give your gift to the temple. And this, is, and, and this person would give lame excuses as to like, oh, the crops didn't go so well this year. And he's saying such a thing angers God. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. Right? Do not think that this is simply like a distant, holy, wrathful God of the Old Testament who would be angry about vows that we fail to keep. Remember in Acts chapter, what is it, 5, 4? Ananias and Sapphira? They claim to be given a certain amount of money, but then they hold a little bit of it back. They lie before God in order to get more blessing in the public eye. And what happens? God strikes them dead in the church foyer. That's a bad day at church. It's a dangerous thing to come into worship and make promises to God and then not keep them. And therefore, what this means is when you make promises before God, such as, till death do us part, you better take those things seriously. It's a dangerous thing to present our children before the Lord and vow to instruct them in the Christian faith and to disciple them and to spend all of your evenings on Netflix. That's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to make a vow that you're going to support people in the worship and work of the of their church and in the discipleship of children and to not take any part in the worship and work of the church. It's a dangerous thing to make church membership vows. It's a dangerous thing to sing many of the songs that we sing on Sundays. Take my silver and my gold, but not a mite would I withhold. From the moment that I wake up, here's a modern one, until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I am surrendered now, I give you everything. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Those are called promises. And yes, they're in our songs. And yes, I understand that often we mean them as aspirational, but we should be very careful. So the teacher is saying that you better be willing to pay up, and if you're not, why would you make the promise in the first place? That is a good question. Why would we make the promise in the first place? Why do we need hyperbole in our worship? Why do we need to say, I surrender all to you? I'm giving you, I'm giving you, why, do we, why would we say we're going to pledge more to the building campaign than we can actually give? Why would we make these commitments why would we be tempted to let our mouths run ahead of us, to promise something big and extravagant for God? Well, it's based on the idea that I can do something and prove to myself and to God that I will impress God to get the blessing that I want. That my grand gifts and my great vows and my wondrous sacrifices and my many words, again, we come back to the theme here we can arrive at our critical point. Windbag worship is utter vanity because they are all attempts to justify ourselves in the sight of God. They are all attempts to wring out of God blessings and acceptance. Justify means that God accepts you, that he sees you as good and right in his presence, that God is good with you. That's what justify means. And what the teacher is saying is that in all these attempts in our religiosity to justify ourselves and to gain approval and blessing from God through our religiosity, that that will not give you what you really want. That all of your outward rituals and formality and religious sacrifices will not give you the acceptance with God that you want. This is the heartbeat of man-made religion. We sense that there is something wrong, and that is a good instinct. 
that we aren't right in God's sight. That is a correct instinct as well. But the problem then runs to when we hope to attain status with God, that acceptance and blessing from God through our sacrifices and our many words and our empty promises. The teacher is saying that all our religious pomp and circumstance is nothing but smoke. It is vanity. It is vanity because it will not give you the justification you long for. A.W. Tozer said it this way. Religion has accepted this monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster is what will make man dear to God. It is the religion of the human heart to make ourselves as big as possible. We are the spiritual pufferfish. And it is a religious game, and it's a charade. It's smoke, and it smells like the pit of hell, and God sees right through it. God says, I want holiness and obedience, and we say, I can't give you that, but can I give you some emotive worship? Will you take some sort of outward show? What about a short-term missions trip? Sorry for those of you that just came back from a short-term missions trip. You did great work. (laughs) But do you see how offensive that is to God? God says, I want holiness from you. And you say, "Eh, what about some rituals? And why do we have to do this? Why do we feel the need to cover ourselves up with this religiosity? It's because we know that we're guilty. We know there's something wrong. So somewhat kind of a chicken soup for the soul sort of story. It's the story of a little boy who accidentally killed his grandmother's duck. He was simply out shooting and practicing with a slingshot. And he was, he, 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 he accidentally hit the duck. And he knew his grandmother would be devastated and she'd probably be really, really, really mad at him. And so... He was convinced, though, that no one saw his foul deed. Where's Eric when you need him? So he buried the duck, and he thought all was well, but later he finds out his sister saw the whole thing, and now she has complete leverage on him. Uh Uh-oh. And so anytime it was her turn to wash the dishes or take out the garbage or wash the car, she would come to him and simply say, remember the duck. And so he would rush off to do whatever task that she needed to be done. That's the religion of justifying yourself. It's the whisper in your heart that says, remember the duck. So you better have some good prayers and some really heartfelt worship, and you better make some promises. You see, your religiosity is vanity. It is chasing the wind. And so this is ultimately not about whether our prayers are too long or our choruses are too often repeated or whether we have dressed reverently enough when we came to church or are we somber enough. This is ultimately about this. As you enter into worship, what are you putting on to make yourself right with God? So what ends the self-justifying kind of religion? What allows us to draw near to God's presence justified in his sight? Not coming in, having to justify ourselves. What puts an end to that? Because being in the house of God and with God's people and with the Lord himself is what we need. It is the longing of your heart. That instinct is good. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, The one thing that I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 84 says it similarly, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is a better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It is good to be with God's people. It is good to dwell in the house of the Lord. So this is the best place. 
This is the place we need to be, but our outward worship, nor our religious rituals, nor our promise, promises can gain us access to God's presence when we enter here. So how, how do we get that access? How are we justified as we come to God? Here, we come to point two, and we're taking the turn a little bit more towards home now. The call into God's presence. So we have the windbag of religiosity, but the call into God's presence. You see, we speak, God says, my words are better. I will call you. And God has invited us into his house and into his very presence. He wants you here. And he not only called us to himself, but he has made a way for you to come here and to enter in, not having to justify yourself. How do we come into God's presence, not hoping to receive justification, but already justified, already accepted, already made right, already given a blessing? This is where Jesus comes in. Because there was one who made a promise to God the Father, and from eternity past who said, I will enter the world, and I will perfectly obey you. I will give you the true sacrifice of praise. My body as a living and holy, acceptable to, uh, sacrifice to God, Romans 12, 1. He is, is the perfect one. And we are just in God's sight because Jesus took his body and sacrificed it on our behalf. And we are declared righteous because Jesus not only took our sins from us and covered us with his blood of his sacrifice, but he also took his perfect record of obedience and he gave it to you as a robe of righteousness. And in that moment, in that moment when Jesus does that, when he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness on the cross, in that moment, you now have eternal access to God the Father. How do we know it's at that moment? Because of what happens in the temple at that moment. The temple worship, that's what it's saying. What you gotta be careful as you go to gather into the house of the Lord, be careful. And everything about the temple said, be careful. You can't enter into God's room there's a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies that only one person, one time of year, after a whole week of sacrifices and ritual cleansings, could go into for a little bit of time. It was called the Holy of Holies. That is God's bedroom. And he says, you cannot go there. You cannot gain access to that place. You need a perfect sacrifice. In all of these thousands of lambs and bulls and goats, they will not do. But in Jesus, we have the perfect sacrifice. And so at Matthew chapter 27, verse 15 and 51, it says this, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirits. And in the moment Jesus dies, it says this, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How do you have access? Because Jesus, through his body being torn, toward the temple robe so that you might have perpetual and eternal access to God. This is what Jesus does on the cross. And the gap between us and God, heaven and earth, has been bridged. And because we are accepted in God's sight, because now we come into his presence with our sins cleansed by his sacrifice, and not only that, but wearing Jesus' robe of righteousness, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus not only that, but Jesus has now entered into the throne room of God so that whenever you access, you come into God's house, enter in here and worship, enter in to pray, enter in to spend time with God, he goes, yeah, he's one of mine. I've covered him. It says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, guard your steps to confidence, enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. 
through his death on the cross. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us therefore draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says you can now boldly enter the throne of grace. He is the sacrifice that we need. His words are our words, the words of life that we need to hear, and his promises, not ours. We don't come in, oh, I'll promise you this, and I'll give you that. No, we come hearing his promises to us to give us eternal access to God the Father for all of eternity. The call to worship from God is this, lay down your religious charade as you come into my house. I am not fooled. Lay aside all of your self-righteousness. Put away your self-justification. You are welcome in God's presence. Now come boldly. And so week in and week out when we come into this place, and there is something sacred about this place when we are gathered, it is different than Mondays, and it's different than the woods. Into this place, when we finally and fully enter into God's presence, we are actually practicing for all, for all of our lives, we're practicing entering into heaven. You know, there's an old evangelistic approach. It was called some, some a group, evangelistic method called evangelism explosion. And it had this, um, in this survey that they would do with people, had this question, this is always the first question. It's a rather famous one. If you were to die tonight and to come into God's presence and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my house, what would you say? Did you know that's what we have to answer that question every time we come to church? Every week we get to practice what we will say. So what do you say? Why should you be welcome in the house of God? The answer to that question tells us what it means to fear God and guard our steps when we come to worship each week. And here's what it is. Here's the first thing. I should not be here. My sins need cleansing. That's what it means to guard your steps. And here's the second. Or the first one is, I, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But by the blood of Jesus, I'm a sinner. Remember in Luke chapter 18, it says this. Jesus gives this parable. And this parable is essentially Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There were two men who went up to the temple to pray. There was a Pharisee, and he stands before God, and he lays out his list of righteousness and how he's so much better than everybody else. And all the things that he's done, I've tithed, and I've fasted, and then he says that then the other guy is a tax collector, and he comes in and he says, God, I'm a sinner. And then it says at the end of Luke chapter 18, Jesus looks at it and he says, here's the point. The tax collector goes home justified, not the Pharisee. So what does it mean to guard your steps as you come into the house of God? I don't deserve to be here. That's where it begins. Here's the second thing. But for the righteousness of Christ. I get to enter in because I have clothed myself in the righteousness, or Christ has clothed me with his righteousness. I can only be here not because I have dressed beautifully, not because I cleaned behind the ears on Saturday night, not because I have done this and this and this this week, and I've done my devotions for five and a half days, not because of those things. I enter in because Jesus has covered me with the righteousness that he won for me. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the answer to the question has a question that literally says, how are you made right with God? And it says this. It says, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, such that it is as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. You are welcome into worship. 
What's it mean to prepare your heart? You confess, I don't deserve to be here, but I am welcome because I have the righteousness of Christ. This is what it is to come to worship and to guard your steps. I think this is beautifully articulated well, what then begins to where we, then, then drops us, when we have that mindset as we come into this place. This pastor, down named Zach X. White, put it this way. When we embrace these things, we are less inclined, confession and putting on the righteousness of Christ. He says, we are less inclined to use church as a means of trying to prove something to God or to keep up appearances, for we are already known. Our evils are already found out. Our denials are less and less interesting. Clean and humble truth about God and about us takes center stage in our worship. We are made quiet in the presence of the vibrant storyteller, an intimate lover, a merciful knower of our worst moments. Freed from having to spin words, contentment finds us here. God is here. As we prepare our hearts this way, we guard our steps, laying us, confessing our sin and claiming the righteousness of Christ, we now get to enter in and simply enjoy God. And this leads us to our final point, the sound of fear-filled worship. Just two things. And I'm going to let you talk about these things more in your community groups. What would this do to our worship? What might it look like if we entered in with the sense of, I, I need to be covered, and I need the righteousness of Christ, first, I think we come ready to listen first. It's no longer about my babbling and my needing to make myself right. I'll give you an illustration. Children, they come into the house. One of them comes in. A kid comes in tattling on another kid. And I can hear the, the offending kid come running behind them. And the offending kid who wants to cover over their sin, what do they do? but it's blaming the other kid it's saying i didn't do it it's denials it's like oh my goodness and then if they actually been caught it's like i'll do this i'll do that i'll make up for this what what happened but then there's the other kid the kid the son who man he he got angry and he hits his sister and she comes in tattles and he comes in he goes dad i'm so sorry i i lost my temper and i hit her ah quietness how do I respond? Son, I love you so much. You did wrong, but you're welcome. You're welcome in our presence. God says, I want to talk. I want to speak to you. I want to hear, but I want you to hear my words first. Don't come in running their mouth. And, and so perhaps fear-filled worship means we draw near and we let God talk to us first. We let him have the first voice. Simply as an application point, what Joel seeks to do in our, in our liturgy, our actual order, is this is what we want to do. We start with a call to worship. He gets the first voice. What do we do? We respond in worship. He then, he, we then read a passage of scripture and we confess our sin in light of it. And then we read something called an assurance of pardon, where from God's word he tells us that we are pardoned. And then we get up again and we sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. Then I get up and I preach the word. And then what do we do? We sing a song in response to the word. And then who gets the final word? The benediction is not because it's just something. It's not a cherry on the top. We're letting God have the final word. First and last. But I would ask you, what might it look for you to show up to church ready to listen to his voice? It might mean that you actually stay home on Saturday nights. And prepare your heart. It might mean that you need to get up actually not just just in time for church. And that you actually arrive here five minutes before and not five minutes after. Not to smash the 90% of you who weren't in the room at 10 o'clock this morning. <laughs> that you actually put your phone away and you don't read the news. 
so that you can be fully present here. You've been given six days to go work and run around and do all that stuff. There's a day in which God says, come into my house. Is there a better invitation than that? Second, we are now ready to focus on the Lord fully in worship. We're not self-consumed. Verse 2, it says, God, it tells us that God is really big and he's in heaven and we're really small. We're on earth. He is eternal. We are a moment. And now that we're not trying to make up for our smallness in his sight, we can simply come and sit in awe of his grandeur. And then when we begin to speak, it will mean something. It will be worship. We've cleared the playing field of our self-consciousness and our need to self-justify ourselves. That's been pulled away. And here we finally enter into true worship. It actually becomes not a runway show for our self-righteousness, but it becomes a sanctuary of praise in which we actually now, you're out of the way, and we sit quorum Deo before the face of God. That's what it means to fear the Lord, it says in verse 7. Fearing the Lord, as we've said it over and over again, is this, is to live, and now we'll say worship and view of who God is. Not coming and ta- cowering in terror, but it's recognizing that God is God and that we're entering into his presence and he is the one who has welcomed us there and that he has made a way and that should put you in a place of reverence and awe. Awe. And that you come before a God who is in heaven and yet he has invited you into the very throne room of heaven to worship him this morning. Do you understand who you stand in front of and sing? It is not a friend or a neighbor. It is the holy God. And he is mighty and he is powerful. You know the illustration from C.S. Lewis? When Aslan the lion is there by the water and a little girl wants to go get the water and he's inviting her to come drink. But she's scared because he is a lion. And so she asks this guy, he's a beaver, who's, who knows something of the lion more than she does. And she goes, is he dangerous? Or is he safe, she says. And he goes, no, he's not safe. But he is good. And therefore, the God who is in heaven and you are on earth says, you who were once my enemy are now my friend. So boldly come into my presence. Drink of my living water. And there we can finally worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for being so flippant with our worship. And by that, Lord, I don't mean our joyful sounds of fellowship that we have beforehand or the fact that we wear jeans to church at this place. But what I mean is the flippancy that we come with the audacity to think that we just have a right to be here on our own merits. Not remembering what it costs to make a way for we, us to enter the household of God each and every week. Lord, it's seen in the fact that we don't even come to church that often. It's really not that special to us. And it's really about us. Yeah, I'll go to church. I guess I need to prove some things to God. No, this is the delight of our souls. This is the blood-bought place that we get to be with God's people in God's presence. And so, Lord, I pray that we would revere revere this day and revere this hour, that we would prepare our hearts for it by confessing our sin, by putting on the robe of righteousness, and then coming in with hands lifted and knees bowed, proclaiming the goodness of God. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen.